And our practice uh, here on Wednesday nights and what we do here on Wednesday nights is to examine uh, those truth claims of the Bible, of Christianity. And the way that we've gone about doing that, and usually pretty much every semester you'll find us doing that, is by taking either one specific book of the Bible or maybe a, a, a specific portion of the Bible and work our way through that. And so this semester uh, we're doing, um, we're looking at the life of David in a series that I've titled Game of Thrones. Uh, And it's basically going to be pretty much in First and Second Samuel, though we may look at some psalms. David wrote a lot of psalms. Uh, But the main main thrust of what we'll be looking at is uh, the story as it comes to us in First and Second Samuel of the life of David. And before I start, before we read, we'll be in uh, First Samuel 16. And we'll begin kind of where David is introduced to us, the reader, in 1 Samuel 16. If you want to turn there or just look at your handout. But before I read that, I just want to ask the question, why David? Why would we think it's important or worth our while to look at the life of a guy that lived 3,000 years ago? 3,000 years ago. Well, for starters, um, he is second only to Jesus as far as mentions of his name in the Bible. Second only to Jesus, David. Okay, uh, Though he lived some thousand years before him. Uh, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, he's mentioned all over the place. His story, as we find it in First and Second Samuel, it is the most extensive single narrative of any one character in the entire Bible. Um, we know more about him than any other person in Scripture. Uh, for the New Testament writers, if you look at the New Testament writers as they deal with David, they see him as a towering figure over redemptive history, meaning God's history from beginning to end as he's been working to save and bring to himself a people. Uh, they see him as a source of authority, whether by example, the things that he did, or whether by the things that he wrote. They talk about uh, the things that he wrote and said as, as things that carry the authority of the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, They see him as the source of the royal line that preserves the messianic hope that gives us Jesus. If you look at the genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels, David is where Jesus physically came from. So other than Jesus, no one comes close to David to, as far as importance in the Bible. So um, the Old Testament and the New Testament give tremendous import to him. So if we want to take Christianity seriously, if we want to take the Bible seriously, if we want to learn more about those things and God, at some point, you got to deal with David. You have to. And so that's what we hope to do this semester. Um, and tonight, I want us to be introduced to him as he comes to us in this passage. But I also kind of want to just give you a big picture of what we'll be doing as we look at the life of David this semester. So, if you will, we're just going to read um, the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and uh, came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and he invited them to the sacrifice. 
When they came, he looked on Eliab and he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. Behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we look into it. Father, we just pray as we always do, that as we come to your word, that we would hear, see, taste, and know words of truth and words of life. Father, these can only come from you. And so we pray that you would speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name and in the power of your spirit. Amen. So I've just got three things for you tonight. David, the man, David, the king, and David, the anointed. Okay. I'm not, uh, the first thing we'll look at is David the man. And I'm not, I'm not a connoisseur by any means of this, but I really like documentaries. I don't know what you think about documentaries or even like the behind the scenes features that come on DVDs or Blu-rays. I, I love watching those. Um, I don't know what it is, but it, those doc- documentaries or behind the scenes pieces uh, on DVDs or movies or whatever, what they do is they kind of give you the story behind the story. Uh, no matter how good the movie is or no matter how well-known a historical event is, there's always this feeling that there's something else going on behind it. In a movie, that's obvious because it's actors and whatnot. Um, but there, we always know there's something kind of behind the curtain. Maybe there's more that meets the eye. There's more details than we could possibly know. And there's something about documentaries or, um, or, or real-life things on TV that kind of give you this feeling like this is the real Story, right? I think this is part of the success of The Office, right? I mean, The Office is just hilarious, partly. Uh, Parks and Rec as well. But there's kind of those moments like when Jim and Pam, those main characters in The Office, they, they break character in the story and they look at the camera and they like acknowledge you as the audience member. And you kind of feel, you feel like it's more real for some reason, even though it's as fake as can be. I think maybe this is also why kind of reality TV, as terrible and scripted as it is, you know it's scripted, right? Reality TV scripted. Um, <laughs> it's still um, it's still kind of ruling everything on TV these days is pretty much reality television. As we begin looking at this story, as we begin looking at the story of the life of David, we must remember this. David was a real person. It's so easy to miss that. Uh, because of how he's been handled and how, because of how the church has handled the Old Testament at times, uh, right? And I want to get into that in a minute. But just remember, he was a person just like me and you. And that, that's easy to forget with a lot of biblical characters. Um, but, I mean, you look at David. He slayed giants. He led armies. He was a skilled musician. Um, he was a, a talented poet. He was righteous in God's eyes. He was the man after God's own heart, right? And so we've grown up hearing about David. Well, if you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, dare to be like David, right? 
And so there's kind of this mystique that we build up, and, and, and characters like David kind of become these mytholo- mythological creatures, these larger-than-life people that I'm never really fully going to be like. But let's remember, and I, we're going to see this as we look through the story of his life. He's a real person. And the Bible presents him to us as a real person. Now, I'm about to throw a quote at you from Walden by Henry David Thoreau. And I do not pretend to know what that book's about um, or to understand anything that Henry David Thoreau wrote. But I like this quote. Um, Thoreau says at the end of Walden, he says this, If you've built castles in the air, your work not need, need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now, put the foundations under them. I don't pretend to exactly know everything he's saying there, but this is what I assume he's saying a little bit. In essence, don't let lofty aspirations um, make you feel or believe that they're unattainable, uh, and, but rather go after them, make, work to make them a reality. I mention that quote because of this. We have to be careful with the ways in which we build castles in the air, so to speak, with the Bible. And with biblical characters and with biblical truth and with biblical guidelines and examples and all these things that come to There's a danger that we face when dealing with the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Um, we can take spiritual principles. We can take moral guidelines. We can take theological truths. And what we do with them sometimes is we kind of just pluck them like a little balloon and we attach them to ourselves so that we kind of float through this thing that we've assumed is the Christian life, right? Um, and so they're kind of detached from their actual context, from their actual actual story uh, from where they're actually coming from. And, and what we actually end up doing then is totally ripping them a meaning. And when you do that, when you go to the Bible and just start kind of nitpicking and extracting these things, what you've actually done is you've made the truths of the Bible kind of these meaningless post-it notes on the refrigerator door of your life. Came up with that. I thought that was neat. But um, let me use an example. Let me use an example. Uh, Romans eight twenty eight. It is one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture where Paul says uh, in Romans 8.20 that we know. Now, he doesn't just say I know. He says we know, meaning we can know. We know that for those that love God, all things work together for good. Who doesn't like that verse if you like God, right? Um, it makes a great post-it note, uh, by the way, or a great note on a card. But here's the thing. Real life can easily make that verse a castle in the air for you. Because if you take that verse and what you think it means is, then I'm never going to be sorrowful anymore. I'm never going to face pain or suffering. Um, Very quickly, something like cancer or someone you love dying or um, divorce or whatever can rip that, that seemingly rip the foundations out from under you and you, you don't know how to deal with a truth or a verse like that anymore. It was C.S. Lewis, as he reflects on uh, the passing of his wife, who was ravaged by cancer and then uh, died, um, died of it, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And in it he says this, You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. What I'm trying to suggest to you here is... Where, how do we come to the Bible, a story like David, deal with David, deal with what God is trying to tell us, and keep the foundations there? Well, I think the Bible already does it for us if we'll just deal with it as it comes to us. This is why, what I'm trying to set you, is why the Bible gives us a story. 
That's why we get a David story. We don't just get, there was a man named David once upon a time who slayed giants and was a man after God's own heart. No, we get a story that tells us about his life. It tells us about all the details of his life. It's selective history. All written history is selective history. But we see warts. We see ugliness. We we see things we're uncomfortable seeing in this man that's exalted for us. and, And we don't really know what to do with it all the time. Because it's the story of a real man. A real man who when the prophet of God comes to anoint him, the prophet doesn't even know where he is. The prophet isn't even expecting him as he comes to him. The father of this man doesn't even invite him to this thing with the prophet. He's the runt out tending the sheep, right? But he's the man who is called by God to be the king of God's people. And through the story of this man's life, we see what it really means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. The more you read the story, the more you see. It's actually, if you read through the story, as I've been reading it and preparing for this, it really is a lot like Game of Thrones. There's rape, there's murder, there's jealousy, there's betrayal, um, there's assassination. But again, it's story. And then through the story, we see David can't just be a model for us. Though at times he is. Through the story, what really stands out in the story is David's humanity. And it makes us uncomfortable. We'll see that if you keep coming back. He sings, he dances, he laughs, he cries. He makes friends, he gets lonely. He sings praise, he gets depressed. He murders a guy because he wants his wife. That's one that sticks out. And from the standpoint of his humanity, he really wasn't much. If you look at him just as as a human, he's not much. Because uh, as Eugene Peterson said, from a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. If if all we're looking at David is from history standpoint, that's all we get. But this is precisely the man that God chooses to be the king of his people. Why would he do that? It's the man that God chooses to be one of the most central figures in his people's history. But you see, it's his humanness in the story that's actually going to make you the most uncomfortable. Because for us, humanity to us, when we get down to real humanity, our experience of it is not all that bright. Because our experience of humanity has been flawed. It's been broken. At times it's even been downright wicked. For many of us, that's why we come to the Bible and we kind of build these spiritual castles in the air. Because we don't want to get our hands dirty. But the thing about the Bible is the Bible does not shy away from getting its hands dirty. It's going to give us the bold and the beautiful, but it's also going to give us the ugly. And we're going to have to deal with it. The beginning of this story reminds us not to be fooled by appearances, not to focus on the external. But we cannot miss that one of the most deadly ways that we do that is by denying our own humanity. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the, most, the deadliest way that we do that is we deny our true selves. We deny the ordinary us. Not, it's not the you that you put on when you're going to be in a group of people. Not the you that you want others to think of you as. Not the you that you measure yourself against and are constantly beating yourself up that you're not this you that you think you should be. I'm talking about the real you. Because when we look at God making David a man after his own heart, we'll see it's precisely David's ordinary that God's going to use. It's precisely David's broken, (laughs) David's sinful, 
David's failure that he's going to use. And so the question kind of outset is, are you brave enough to come and look at the real David? And maybe actually in the process, see a little bit of the real you. That there's some things there that we don't like about David, but the, one of the main reasons we don't like it is because it points stuff out about us. David was a man. He was a person. He was like us in a lot of ways. But the second thing here is David was the king. Okay, uh, He gets anointed to be the new king in this passage. So um, even though we get acquainted with humanity, there is a very big sense in which David is not like us. He was a king. Okay, It's kind of hard to relate with that when like a whole nation does whatever you say. You, you have that kind of power. We don't necessarily know how to relate with that. Uh, so in that way, he's larger than life. But it's also in that way that his story speaks to us. Look at verse 1 there. As this kind of get in the passage now. Uh, as, as the story begins, we find that the prophet Samuel is grieving. And he's grieving over the first king in Israel's history, Saul. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, written some, seven, uh, some 1,300 years later. God actually gave provisions in Deuteronomy 17 for the time when Israel would have a king. And the interesting thing about it is that that king, king the king of God's people, is going to be different from all the kings like other nations. The king of God's people was not going to hoard silver and gold and women. That's what it says. Um, the, the king of God's people is not going to exalt himself over his people. He's actually going to stay lower than his people. He's going to serve his people. Well, Samuel's grieving because the first king that looked the part, Saul, has failed miserably. Okay, that's where we pick up the story. Saul was God, God the people asked for a king, and so God said, okay, I'll choose one for you. And he fails miserably because he rejects God and he rejects God's word. If you remember the book of Judges, if you know anything about the book of Judges, that comes before 1 Samuel. The book of Judges is about a time in Israel's history when they had no king and they were ruled by judges. And there's a constant refrain throughout the whole book. And the refrain is, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, that time in Israel's history was a disaster. Sin and some pretty terrible stories, some of the worst stories in the Bible you find in Judges. Because everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So what Samuel is grieving over is this. God's people need a king. And the one they had failed miserably. What is going to happen to them? That's where Samuel's at here. Okay, So lo and behold, verse 1, God comes to him. And he assures him and he gives him hope. Samuel, I've provided for myself a king. There's a new king. So Samuel goes, as he's told. Uh, he goes to Bethlehem, as, de- as uh, God tells him. Uh, the elders come out and meet him because, I mean, this is the prophet Samuel. So it's like, are we about to be in trouble? Because the prophet, why is the prophet showing up? Um, so he throws, he, uh, he throws a great feast so they can kind of do this thing without everybody knowing exactly what's going on. Um, and Samuel gets time with Jesse's sons, right? This is Jesse's A-team. Jesse's going to march out his best and brightest in front of Samuel uh, so that Samuel can see which one God is going to choose. And it's actually, it's a pretty awkward scene for us, isn't it? Because this is God's prophet. <laughs> and God's actually going to have to tell him no <laughs> over and over and over again. Seven times, okay? Um, Saul was twice pointed out as um, a full head taller than any other man in Israel. He had the, Saul had the build of a king, right? Samuel shows up, and the first son that he sees, he looks at how tall he is and says, this is the one. 
And you're like, okay, so if the prophet of God had had his way, we would have had Saul 2.0, and it would have just been the same story, right? The thrust of this passage is we cannot be fooled by appearances. But even more than that, it's that we, to our peril, are enslaved to appearances. Enslaved to the external. We're always looking to the external to solve our problems. And what we're shown here is that all these, Samuel and, Je- and Jesse and, and anybody else that was involved here, what Im- they just automatically assume that what impresses them must be what impresses God. And how wrong they are, right? And so God corrects Samuel's way of thinking here. Verse 7, very popular verse, applied in many different ways. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So God is kind of saying here, Samuel, if you want to see as I see, you have to look on the heart. In other words, you've got to see my heart. My heart is looking on the inward realities of a person. Um, and so to, to see as God sees is to see God's heart and what motivates God's heart and what God is focused on. And he is not usually focused on what we are. And when Samuel says, um, this is the one, God says, no, I've rejected that one. Samuel gets all excited. He's like, this is the one. And God says, no, I've rejected that. I reject that. I reject what you are looking for in a king. Okay? This is what this tells us. To find the true king, we must realize that God rejects all the stuff that we cling to as our king. If we're going to find the true king... And we'll make the case to the master that we were actually made for a king. And that's why we need one. If we're going to find the true king, we've got to realize that God rejects all the stuff that we cling to as a king. I stole this illustration, but I think it's brilliant. You know at the beach, there's all those large souvenir shops, right? You know what I'm talking about? And I, I just remember all these as a kid. And this, that's why this illustration rings true with me. Is that when you're a kid, like when you're at the beach, you're not thinking about just lounging on the beach. Like the one place you want to be is in, this, in that souvenir place, right? With all the cool stuff. There's airbrushed everything. Airbrushed shirts, airbrushed koozies, airbrushed cups, racy bumper stickers, right? Those are the best that your mom will never let you have, so why would you want it? But um, a little too personal, sorry. Um, but at some point, you get older, and you realize that those places, right, they're full of garbage, <laughs> They're, they're full of worthless stuff that, like, you're never going to do anything with. If your dad, like, owns one of those, I'm sorry. But uh, if I just, like, insulted your honor, um, your livelihood. The story, of, the story of the Bible and life is that we are prone to cling to and exalt garbage. Because we're ruled by the external. We exalt it as our king. We exalt the things on the outside. We look at surface solutions and we think they are it. And that's what we're constantly uh, looking to. So I just, do you want to know where your heart is in relation to God's heart? David's the man after God's own heart, right? Well, so how do we know if where our heart is in relation to God's heart? Well, ask you. I mean, this is kind of basic, but seriously, let's ask ourselves: What about people really fascinates you? What is it that really draws you to people? Is it charisma? Is it beauty? Is it humor? Is it charm? Or is it actually who they are? 
And have you ever actually taken the time and made the effort to get to know who they are? Or you have you at times made lack of certain external things just totally wipe out any chance that you're ever going to make the effort to get to know them? Are all your friends just like you? This is a hard one for all of us, I think. I hope it's a hard one for me. Do they look like you? Talk like you? Believe all the same things like you? Chances are you've exalted the external, right? Finishing college and starting a career, getting a career, finding a career. What is the most important thing to you in that pursuit? What is it? Is it how much money you're going to make? Is it? Is it prestige? How you think it's going to make you feel? Is it social standing, some sort sort of um, ring that you want to be on or in? The thing is, you're never going to have enough money. Look, if the U.S. government is out of money, you are never going to have enough money, right? You're never going to have enough money, and there's always going to be someone better than you. Really. Dating. Dating. Um, Bum, bum, bum. The grandest enigma of our time Um, and our setting and our context. Honestly, what is it that you are looking for in a person? What is it? What is it that um, gives you the automatic no or the automatic yes? Have you ever been just automatically no because of looks or because of a momentary impression? Marriage, sex. Um, Our entire generation, because of the proliferation of porn and the pornification of everything, right? Um is is leading us to value and focus on mere externals. That is what we have built up as the be-all, end-all. And years down the road, we're going to look at our marriages and our sex lives, and we're going to wonder, why is this so shallow? It's because that's where your heart was being led in the first place. None of these things are bad in and of themselves. Wealth, uh, good looks, um, sex. Attractive looks, um, prestige. None of these are bad in and of themselves. But here's the point. They are garbage when you cling to them as king. They are garbage when you exalt them and put them on a throne that they were never intended to be on. Because none of those things can be the righteous king that God intended for us. They can't be. And so don't be surprised when God says no a bunch of times. To things that you're going after. Because he's always about the business of upsetting our expectations. If God loves us, if he loves us, he's going to turn some things upside down. And show them the emptiness that they are for us. Because he wants us to be ruled by his heart, not ours. Right? He wants to show us that in King David. And I think we'll see that as we keep going. The last one's this. is David... The anointed. Um, How David is brought on the scene of history is clear. David is entered into the story clearly only by God's anointing. God says to Samuel, I've got a king. I've provided him for myself. Go anoint him. Right? Samuel's grieved for God's people because the king had failed. But in 1 Samuel 16, we see that God, that the true king, actually has never lost control. You see how deliberate he is in this passage as he leads Samuel through this process. He never panics. He's not in a hurry. He's not worried. He knows what's going on. The thrust of this passage 
is God's anointing. This is God's anointing. It is God's intervention into the story of his people. It's God's provision providing for himself a king. It's accompanied by God's spirit coming on David um, and taking him in to this new calling. This was God's man for God's people. That's the point of David's entry into the story. He would be God's anointed. And Samuel, you see, knew exactly what that meant. He gets it wrong a little bit, but he knows what he's looking for. You look at verse uh, 6 there. Verse 6, Samuel says, Surely this is God's anointed. The Hebrew word there, Messiah, from which we get the New Testament word, Messiah. The anointed one. Samuel knew that he wasn't just looking for a king. He was looking for savior. Israel needed a king that would save them. See, you'll have to imagine, picture it. You have to imagine how ridiculous this scene looks, okay? The, the, the brawny, uh, awesome looking older brothers of David are all standing around there and they're all rejected. And so they bring in the runt. It says the youngest there, the Hebrew word there literally means like weaker vessel. He, the runt of the group is brought in and he's the one that in the middle of them is anointed as God's new king. It's a weird scene, okay? And it's clearly pointing to something. It's clearly pointing to this. God preparing his people for the only kind of king that could save them. It wouldn't be David, though. Ultimately, it wouldn't be David because ultimately it couldn't be David. Over a thousand years later, the king is born. And once again, no one's looking for him. Ironically enough, he's born in Bethlehem and the whole of the Old Testament tells people to look for him and no one is looking for him when he's born. Everybody misses him. And no one thought, no one thought this is the Messiah. Throughout his life, no one thought this is the Messiah, this is the Savior. Uh, in Mark 6, we have people saying he's just one of us, right? In, Mark, in Matthew 11, we have people saying he's too wild, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard. In John chapter 7, we, say, we have people saying what good could possibly come out of Nazareth? But the clincher of all of it is in Matthew 27 when they say, wait, Messiahs don't suffer. The king God provided, but everybody missed him. And let's be honest, it's all kind of silly, isn't it? The Bible's going to tell me that that's the kind of king that I need. I need a naked man hanging on a cross as my king. That's what the Bible's going to tell me. That's what I need. And the answer is actually a resounding yes. That's exactly the king you need because he's the only one that can save you. Because here's the, here, here it is. If we are so brave, we won't be so focused on the outward appearance. And we'll actually be daring enough to look a little below the surface. And we'll see a lot of what's ugly in David's story. But what really bothers us is when we start seeing the same exact stuff in our own hearts. That's when we really get uncomfortable. Yet, as the story unfolds, and that's why it's a story, that's precisely what God uses us, uses to lead us to the only king that can truly save. Because that king, that king that can truly save, works in the lives of people. <laughs> Broken, tired, angry, Pressed people. Again, let me ask, why David? Why David? Eugene Peterson puts, puts it like this. David, conditioned by the morals and assumptions of a brutal Iron Age culture, 
David with his eight wives. David angry. David devious. David generous. David dancing. David weeping. There's nothing, absolutely nothing that God can't and doesn't use to work his salvation and holiness into our lives. Here it is. You know when you found the true king who can save It's when you can honestly look at yourself and say, I might have some things altogether on the outside. Inside, I'm a wreck. I'm exhausted. I'm angry. I'm confused. I'm self-absorbed. I need something. I need someone who will save me and heal me from the inside out. Someone, I need someone to intervene in this. And that's when, that's precisely when that foolish cross becomes the most beautiful thing, right? Because I see it then as an everlasting symbol of a king's love for me. He doesn't just swoop in and kind of fix, fix things and rearrange things for me. Though every time I do that in my life, I think it's going to fix everything. No, but he actually comes and renews my whole person and touches my whole person because he became a person. And if I am his, I get to be called the Christian. You know what that literally means? Anointed one. That's why, because of him, because of the true king, it's why we can look at a guy like David and we can actually see the heart of the king, Jesus. And so I just want to leave you this question. Won't you at least come back and look into that with us this semester? It's invitation. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your work in the life of a guy named David. We thank you for the story. We thank you that you intervene in our stories, that you're at work, that you're in control, that you know what you're doing. We thank you for giving us this King David so that ultimately we would be pointed to the true King Jesus. We pray that we would see and know him, know his heart, that we might be men and women after his own heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.